0: How God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at DavidPorson.org. This is Ecclesiastes. I'd like to play a game with you to begin uh, this session. I'm going to read some quotes, I won't tell you where they're from, but I want you to put your hand up quickly if you agree with the sentiments that are expressed, All right? If you don't agree, keep your hand down. Here's the first. Generations come and generations go, but the world stays just the same. Anybody agree with that? Oh, half a dozen. Here's another, a man is no better off than an animal because life has no meaning for either. You don't agree with that one. It is better to be satisfied with what you have than to be always wanting something else. Ah, you all agree with that. A working man may or may not have enough to eat, but at least he can get a good night's sleep. A rich man though has so much that he stays awake worrying. You think that's… you agree with that? Don't be too good or too wise, why kill yourself? But don't be too wicked or too foolish either, why die before you have to? (laughs) Does that make sense? No? Here's another one. I found one man in a thousand that I could respect, but not one woman. (laughs) Nobody agree with that? Fast runners do not always win the races and the brave do not always win the battles. You agree with that one, right? One more, put your investment in several places, many places even, because you never know what kind of bad luck you're going to have in this world. You're not sure about that? You should have agreed with everyone, that's all in the Word of God. I've been reading from Ecclesiastes, all those came straight out of the Bible and yet you didn't agree with half of them. (laughs) What I'm trying to show you is that a text out of a context is dangerous. You can make the Bible prove anything you like if you take texts out of context and I'm sure you've heard this, that a text out of context becomes a pretext. Well now, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it really is the strangest book in the Bible. The problem is not how to understand it. It's only too easy to understand. The problem is to agree with it. It says the most outrageous things. It's too easy to understand. It doesn't sound like the Word of God at all. It sounds more like those little slips of paper you get out of Christmas crackers, you know, sort of homely bits of wisdom. In fact, it doesn't sound much different from, for example, Alfred Lord Tennyson, whose uh, centenary of death it was last year. I just picked things at random out of his uh, poems. "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. For men at most differ as heaven and earth, but women worst and best as heaven and hell. (laughs) Authority forgets a dying king, knowledge comes but wisdom lingers." because right is right to follow right, where wisdom in the scorn of consequence. What's the difference between Alfred Lord Tennyson and Ecclesiastes? not much difference at all, is there, when you look at both? In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes has a very contemporary ring. It's full of isms. I'm always wary of isms. Anything that ends in ISM, a little red warning light goes on in my brain. There are only two isms I'm happy with, baptism and evangelism. But apart from those isms, all the other isms really give me the willies. They become obsessions with people. And here are some of the isms I've found in Ecclesiastes. Fatalism, whatever will be, will be. Existentialism, live for the present moment, who knows what the future is, it's there. Chauvinism, well I read one or two statements out that are clear chauvinism. Hedonism, living for pleasure eat, drink and be merry. Cynicism. There's a lot of cynicism in the book of Ecclesiastes and that seems to me the mood of our age. We live in a very cynical age that cannot believe good things of people, that always believes there's something wrong or something bad in motives behind good acts. We're a very cynical people. And the general impression is one of pessimism, a gloomy view of life. It really is quite depressing in a sense to read Ecclesiastes. Here is a man who has reached the end of life and is disappointed, disillusioned and hopeless. I say reached the end of life because it's very easy to tell how old an author is by what he writes. We've just read the Song of Songs and studied it. How old was Solomon when he wrote that, when he extolled the love with this girl. I mean he was quite young. But when you read the book of Proverbs, which he also wrote, he says, now son, watch the women. (laughs) Now how old is he now? You see, he's middle aged, isn't he? He's trying to stop his son doing the same things he did. I remember once hearing a girl say to her mother, what did you do at my age that makes you so worried about me? (laughs) Which is the most devastating question. So when Solomon says, you know, watch the women, son, that's a middle-aged man, but here in Ecclesiastes, remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the teeth are few and the eyes are dim and the legs shake. <laughs> How old is he? He's very near the end of life. He's reaching his long home, as he calls it, and he's looking back on life and he's desperately disappointed, disillusioned and depressed with what he's done about it or with it. And these insights in this book are the result of his observations. Uh, He keeps using the phrase, I saw, I saw, I saw. And he observed life, he watched people and he came to certain conclusions which he includes here. Now this does not mean that God sees life as Solomon sees it. That's very important and that's why you don't just quote texts from Ecclesiastes as if God is saying it we've got to ask why God put it in the Bible, but nevertheless. So here we have Solomon and he gives himself a title in Hebrew, Kohelet. What does it mean? It's sometimes translated preacher or philosopher or lecturer. I think the nearest translation would be speaker, particularly because we use this word for the one who presides over the debates in the House of Commons And this old man is presiding over a debate, but the debate is going on in his mind. And uh, like every good speaker, he allows the pros and the cons to have equal speech. And he listens to a negative thought in his mind, then a positive. And the debate is about the motion, life is worth living. And he cannot decide whether his life has been worth living or not. And he keeps listening to the pros and the cons, the yays and the nays, trying to decide whether the motion is carried or defeated. Now, it's awful to reach the end of life and to be debating that question because you only get one bite of the cherry. You only get one chance to live. Yesterday has gone. You can't have it back again. You only get one time around. And to get to the end of life and feel that you've missed it, that's terrible. It explains the midlife crisis many men have. They, they often reach their goals in their 40s and they get to the top and look around and there's nothing. What's it all been for? What's it all been about? And many men in middle years try and start all over again and they trade in the family saloon for a sports car and they trade in the wife for a later model and they, you know, they, they go crazy because they feel, I've missed it, got to start again. And second and third marriages, trying to capture life, trying to make the most of it before it's gone. It's a very, very common problem. All right, well, Solomon is debating, what are we here for? What's life all about? Is life worth living? How can we make the most of life? And that's probably the most important question any human being can ask, precisely because we only get it once. Once. Many, I'm afraid, don't even bother to ask. They just feed their bodies, keep their job going and they're just existing. What a tragedy to waste a life just existing and just keeping body and soul together. Many people just doing that. Their sole concern is how to keep going. But why keep going if there's nothing worth keeping going for? Well now, let's look at the negative side of the debate first. Have I I wasted my life? What's it all been? And his opening statement, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now unfortunately, that's a bad translation because the word vanity today means pride. Most cars have a vanity mirror on one of the um, sun shields. You notice which side it's usually on, by the way, but... (laughs) Um, It simply means a pride mirror, and the word vanity today simply means pride and nothing more. But in older English, vanity means emptiness. It's to do a thing in vain, useless, wasted. And I think the nearest English word to vanity is pointless. Here's a man who gets to the end of life and says, pointless pointless. It's all been pointless. Now that is a very, very sad conclusion or useless, useless, utterly useless as one modern translation puts it. Now he had been in a position to have anything he wanted and to do anything he wanted. First he was king, so he had the power to do anything he wanted. He also had the wealth He was a very rich man. If money could buy it, he could buy it, and he did. He had fame too. Now these are the things most men want, wealth, power or fame, to find some meaning in life, to make life worth living. Well, he was fabulously wealthy and so famous that the Queen of Sheba came on a pilgrimage just to meet him and see what he was like and she said, the half has not been told. Now he said, I've tried everything and he gives a list of his interests and they cover a huge range of human activity. The first thing he tried was science and the particular branch of science he studied was agriculture and he went in for cattle breeding and he really studied it and he bred some fine cattle, but it didn't satisfy him. It was interesting while it lasted didn't satisfy. So he then turned to the arts and he tried two branches of the arts, music was the first and of course he inherited a love of music from his dad, but he he really went into music, studied the instruments, had orchestras playing in the court and yet it began to pall. So he then moved into architecture, that is satisfying, to build a great building and to feel it'll be there long after you're gone, it's very satisfying. architecture, except you have to live with your mistakes. And then he tried collecting pictures and he built galleries and he collected pictures from all over. Paid a fortune for them, but they're all mine and he would walk along the gallery looking at his pictures. But pretty soon that began to bore him, so he tried entertainment. Now he didn't have TV, he couldn't, so he got court comedians and they came in and they put on a sitcom for him regularly in the palace and he laughed himself silly to go to bed and laughter became comedy, have a good laugh. That's, that's what life's all about, have a good laugh. Have you heard that anywhere? And he tried that and it was fun while it lasted, but it didn't last. So then he went into business and he amassed a fortune in the commercial world and he really was good at buying and selling and he really found he could make money, hand over fist, more than he needed and yet somehow that didn't satisfy. So then he tried pleasure and he tried the usual forms of it, food, wine and women and he certainly went into all three at depth and still he was empty. So he then finally went into philosophy and he bought a library full of books and he, he searched for wisdom books all over, got them from Egypt. There was a lot of wisdom literature in Egypt and he got a lot from there and he filled this library and he studied all the wisdom and he studied all that great men had written and finally he said, of making books there is no end. You can't read them all. And all these things failed him. They stimulated, but they didn't satisfy Now listen, there's nothing wrong with many of those things but if they are the main purpose in life, they will fail to interpret life for you. Don't we need to hear this? There's something very modern about this. He's saying, look, I have tried it all and it's all pointless. Now you see, when you've found real life, you can get joy out of all those things. But if you're trying to find the meaning of life in any of them, one of the problems is you grow old and you can't do them all as you used to or else you just get tired of doing them. And we live in a frenetic age when people are constantly trying something new. The biggest section of bookshops is the cookery section, trying to find some new gastronomic experience that might titivate us you know, we'll go to the Thai restaurant tonight, we'll have Chinese tomorrow night and we'll do Indian the next night, you know, as if Yorkshire pudding isn't good enough for us. As if we must have some new experience to stimulate us, we might be satisfied if we explore all the cafeterias of the world. It is really quite sad to see people trying to find meaning to life in these ways, instead of having found meaning to life, able to enjoy them in their place. But when they become number one, it leads to what he calls vexation of spirit. We would say frustration. You just become frustrated. They are not meeting the need. Now can we explain his failure to make sense of life? Yes, we can. He has tunnel vision. He has observed too much and seen too little. Now tunnel vision is when you can only see a part of what normal sight can see. You only see a bit of the picture. And Solomon had tunnel vision here in two ways he was limited. First of all, everything he saw was under the sun. Favourite phrase of his, I saw under the sun. And if you never lift your eyes above the sun, if all you can see is what's under the sun, you will never understand the meaning of life. I think the saddest people my wife and I have met recently were out on the Costa del Sol. People who'd had a lovely fortnight's holiday in Spain and sold up here to retire there and live under the sun. That's about all you can do out there. No wonder El Dorado was such a flop because life is a flop out there. And we met these sad people who can't afford, can't sell their villa now and they can't afford to come back. They're stuck under the sun for the rest of their existence. Now you see, life can't be lived under the sun. You need a much higher perspective. If all you see is under the sun, you don't see what life is all about. And the other limitation to his observations was he only looked at this life. He never mentions the next now if your vision is limited to this earth and this life you will never understand what life is all about or what makes it worth living you need the perspective of god outside these limits both limits in space and time give you too little a view of life it's only when you see life under heaven and in the light of heaven's perspective and this world in the light of the next that you begin to see what life is all about. You follow me? And this was his tunnel vision and this led him to negative thinking. Now because we live in a scientific age, we've imbibed the scientific way of observing things and science only observes this world and this life. And the scientific age has the same tunnel vision that Solomon has and we're all brought up with it and we all suffer from it and we can't see beyond. You need in a sense to be outside of life and look back at it to see it properly and God is outside life and he can see it properly. And It's very interesting that uh, whenever Solomon brought God into Ecclesiastes, he became positive and optimist. Whenever he was limited to human observations and left God out of his thinking and just observed human beings under the sun and in this world, he got more and more depressed. But when God came into it, he begins to be positive and to see life in a different perspective. And there are two chapters in Ecclesiastes where God comes right into the picture and life is focused. The first is chapter 3. It's the best known and the most frequently quoted section. You all know it. A time to do this, a time to do that. Melvin Bragg gave a title to his latest novel, which was serialized on TV, A Time to Dance. He took it straight out of this. And it's amazing how many authors have taken a phrase out of Ecclesiastes 3 as a title for a novel or a film. Very popular. In fact, it's the only bit of Ecclesiastes that most people could quote. But it's a very important part Unfortunately, people don't quote it all. You see, it is a poem, it's got rhythm, it's a real poetic song about times. But the important bit of it is just after the poetry ends when it goes back to prose and it says that God orders our times. As the psalmist says, our times are in his hand. And when you believe that your life is in God's hands and that he knows the right time for you to dance and the right time for you to weep, then the things that happen to you are not chance, they're God's choice for you. And he's weaving a pattern out of your life. And life won't be one long picnic and life won't be happiness all the way because that's bad for you. Do you realise that if our feelings were always on the same level, we wouldn't have any feelings? Do you ever think about that? It's only because we have lows that we have highs. (laughs) If your feelings were always the same, you wouldn't have any feelings. Thank God for feelings. There are times when we'll feel like dancing and there'll be times when we don't. There's a time to kiss and a time to stop. See? Now then, uh, I've written a chorus about this. We're going to sing it. Um, I've put it to a well-known tune. You'll all be able to sing. And it's about times, but it begins and ends where Ecclesiastes 3 begins and ends with God deciding the right time for us to go through a particular experience. Isn't it a lovely thought to think that if something happens to you that because your life's in God's hands then it's the right thing to happen at that time. This is not fatalism. Fatalism believes in an impersonal fate that nobody can affect that's quite different from God's free choice of what He will allow happen to you. And He will vary our lives so that His purpose is fulfilled in them. Well, let's sing it together. All right? God is sovereign. sets the seasons, date of birth, day of death, time for planting. Time for reaping, time for killing, time to heal, time for wrecking, time for building, time for sorrow, time for joy, time for mourning, time for dancing, time for kissing, time to stop. Time for finding, time for losing, time for saving, time for waste. Time for tearing, time for mending, time for silence, time to talk, time for loving, time for hating, time for fighting time for peace. Have your fun then, but remember, God is sovereign, he decrees." That is why the Bible says when you make plans for the future, always say, God willing. My father always used to put in a letter somewhere, DV, in brackets. It stood for a Latin phrase, Deo Valenti, God willing. Letter after letter, I've seen him just put DV. I'll be with you next week, DV. That's a person who knows that our times are in God's hands. And actually, all the plans you may make may come to nothing because God has other plans for you. And uh, that's a positive note. It's not fatalism, it's not saying whatever will be, will be because God can change his plans. There's no doubt that God changes his mind. He repents. The Bible says that. He interacts with our attitude to him. If we change, he does. If we repent, he does. And time and again you find people like Moses changing God's mind for him and pleading with him. God is not just a, a mechanical force, getting it all laid out. He's a person, and he's interacting with us, and as we interact with him, he can change the times. He can give you a time of dancing when you expected a time of weeping, and he can do the opposite. That's the first chapter in which God comes, and things become positive. And what he's saying is there can be a pattern to life. And God can set the pattern and God can make sure his purposes for your life are fulfilled. Another favourite saying of my father was, uh, life is long enough to live out God's purpose, but it's too short to waste a moment. Well, that's what he's saying in Ecclesiastes 3. Our times are in his hand. And he will decide, not in an arbitrary predestination kind of way, but he will decide what is best for us in the next time, the next part of our life. Isn't it good to have somebody looking after us like that and to know that if the next part of the road is tough and unhappy, well, he has decided that's going to be for our good and he has brought it and he will see us through and our character will be formed by that for our future blessing. See, this is where the longer view of happiness in the next world really makes a lot of difference really does. See this world is so brief and so fleeting. Uh, I've got a theory as to why. When I was 20, one year was a twentieth of my memory. When I was 40, one year was a fortieth of my memory. When I was 60, one year was a sixtieth of my memory. Next week I'm 63, so one year is a 63rd of my memory. And so that's my theory, life gets compressed in your memory and it seems to go quicker and quicker and quicker, doesn't it? It seems no time at all since we were last here videoing and I've had two conferences here since then. One or two of you men came to our men's conference in January, but life just rushes by. But we've got all eternity to benefit from what we've learned in this life, all eternity to enjoy the good things of God without all the hassle. We've got everything to live for. The other chapter which has a strong sense of the presence of God in it is of course chapter 12 and chapter 12 really is worth reading to you because uh, it's written by this old man and I do want to read it because it's such a good description of old age and since I'm now one foot in the grave and the other on a banana skin, it's good to read chapters like this. Listen to it. Young man, he says, I'm starting in chapter 11 verse 9 because oh, these chapter divisions are so messed up, aren't they? I wish we could all have a Bible without chapter and verse numbers in it. would really know the Bible then. Now I'm going to begin with, chap- with chapter 11 verse 7. It's a wonderful thing to be alive, If a person lives to be very old, let him rejoice in every day of life, but let him also remember that eternity is far longer and that everything down here is futile by comparison. Young man, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do all you want to, take in everything, but realise that you must account to God for everything you do. So banish grief and pain, but remember that youth with a whole life before it can make serious mistakes. Don't let the excitement of being young cause you to forget about your Creator. Honour him in your youth before the evil years come when you'll no longer enjoy living. It will be too late then to try to remember him. When the sun and light and moon and stars are dim to your old eyes, and there is no silver lining left among the clouds. For there will come a time when your limbs will tremble with age, and your strong legs will become weak, and your teeth will be too few to do their work, and there will be blindness too. Then let your lips be tightly closed while eating, when your teeth are gone, and you will wake at dawn with the first note of the birds. But you yourself will be deaf and tuneless with quavering voice. You will be afraid of heights and of falling. A white-haired withered old man dragging himself along, without sexual desire, standing at death's door and nearing his everlasting home as the mourners go along the streets. Yes, remember your Creator now. While you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken, and the pitcher is broken at the fountain, and the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. All is futile, says the preacher, all is futile. But then, because the preacher was wise, he went on teaching the people all he knew. And he collected proverbs and classified them, for the preacher was not only a wise man, but he was a good teacher. He not only taught what he knew to the people, but he taught them in an interesting manner. The wise man's words are like goads that spur to action. They nail down important truths. Students are wise who master what their teachers tell them. But my son, be warned, there is no end of opinions ready to be expressed. Studying them can go on forever and be very exhausting. Here is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments, for this is the entire duty of men, for God will judge us for everything we do, including every hidden thing, good or bad. What a message for young people. Now just notice what he says. Number one, he says, remember, remember God, remember him. And what he's admitting is, I forgot him. And of course that's why Song of Songs doesn't mention God. When he was so young and so much in love, he forgot all about God, he only thought about this girl. He says to young people, just remember God while you're young, before it's too late. Second, he says, fear God. Not only don't forget him, but fear him. The wisdom literature of the Bible constantly says it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible will not make you clever, but it will make you wise. Now if you're clever, you'll make more money, but if you're wise, you'll make more of life. Would you rather be clever or wise? Well, one of the first steps in wisdom is to be more afraid of God than anything else. Amazing what people are afraid of. They're afraid of AIDS, they're afraid of redundancy, they're afraid of all sorts of things. But I tell you, if you fear the Lord, you're not afraid of anything or anyone else. That's a big fear and big fears cure little fears. Why should we fear the Lord? Precisely because he's going to ask for an account of what you did with the life he gave you. And the fear of him saying, you messed it up, is a healthy fear. And it's important to fear God. It's one of the biggest motivations to live right. be amazed how many comments I've had for writing that book. We live in a generation where even people inside the church don't want to hear a thing about that. And yet God said, or Jesus said, to born-again believers, don't fear those who can kill your body, rather fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. And if people outside the church don't fear God, that's because people inside don't either. Fear is contagious. And when people inside don't fear the Lord, people outside have no fear of him at all. They think he's a nice old guy who wouldn't harm a fly. They're utterly wrong. So remember God, fear God and obey God. I was in a millionaire's home in Dallas, Texas, And the father in the home had bought his daughter a Toyota car to go to school in. She'd had it 18 months and this happened while I was there. She walked home and she told her father that the car had broken down. It had just stopped in the middle of the road, so he sent a mechanic out to find out what was wrong and the mechanic telephoned and told him and I was present when he asked his daughter have you been putting oil in the car? And she said, oil? You never told me I had to put oil in. I've been putting petrol in. For 18 months she'd driven that car. Now there was a book in the glove box, the maker's instructions. She'd never bothered to read it and so she'd just run it into the ground. Mind you, he had pull and he phoned up Toyota and they promised to give them a new engine free he was telling all his friends about this wonderful Toyota offer, so they got their money's worth (laughs) out of the advertising. But you see, she was an idiot with that car, brand new car, she just totally ignored the maker's instructions. Within 18 months it was finished. But people are equally foolish to leave the maker's instructions on the shelf or in the cupboard. Remember God, fear him, and study his way to live. I believe this is why the book of Ecclesiastes is in our Bible, because it tells you where you finish up if you don't discover his way to live. That if you don't understand the meaning of life from heaven's angle and from the angle of the next world, you finish up a disillusioned, disappointed, depressed person saying, well, the whole lot was pointless. Where has it got me? I'll be dead and gone, and people will have forgotten about me in no time, and I will leave no trace whatever of the 50, 60, 70 years I've spent here. Well, Christians don't feel like that. They know that whatever we do in the Lord, our labor is not in vain, it has eternal consequences for good or evil. And to know that you're doing things, that things could happen this weekend in you that will last forever, because there are eternal issues at stake. I believe that's why it's in our Bible. Many years ago I was preaching my way through Ecclesiastes and uh, I think we had more conversions during that series than any other series I've preached. Yet I wouldn't have chosen Ecclesiastes as a good Gospel message. You're nodding your head, were you there? And you will remember something that happened. There were even Jews converted during that series. But halfway through... My telephone went Sunday afternoon and a voice said, we've got Charles Colson in England, Chuck Colson, the Watergate man, you know, from the Nixon affair, and uh, would like uh, to find a place for him to give his testimony tonight. Could he come to your church in Guildford? So I said, yeah, fine. And then I had a real battle. I thought, I've prepared Ecclesiastes 5. And I don't see why we should stop listening to God's word because a star testimony has come over the Atlantic So I thought, I'm going to preach it anyway and he can give his testimony afterwards. So I preached through Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and then said, now we have Chuck Colson here, uh, Nixon's right hand man from water. He got up and he just said, I don't need to give my testimony, you've already heard it. And we sort of looked at him. He said, that chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes simply describes my life and he went through it verse by verse and illustrated it from the way he'd wasted his life under Nixon, especially the verse, Be careful what you say, every word is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that's the heart of Ecclesiastes 5, because God knows what you say as well as what you do and what you think and what you feel. Never forget that night. Well God teaches us positively in the Bible how to live, he teaches us also negatively how not to and he gives us both examples and the positive and the negative give a good picture together. Ecclesiastes is largely negative, it's saying, don't you finish up like this because if you leave God out and forget him and don't fear him and don't live life according to the maker's instructions, you will get to the end of it and you'll feel it's all been pointless. Well do you want to do that? Why do you want to live God's way? And then you get to the end of it and say, thank God. Remember a prophecy once given to me and it was a direct word from the Lord and it ended, David I, or my son, I want you so to live and work that when you see me, you will say, Lord, we did it. <laughs> Lord, we did it. Then you feel life's been worthwhile. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.